and welcome back to another episode of what they are calling that podcast with that woman off that thing and some old writer bloke. That's us. We're distinctive. <laughs> we're we're oh, we're Emily yeah. Maitlis and John Sopel without the listeners. <laughs> the thing is, when they say that woman off that thing about me, they're thinking of the vixen off the chase, which is really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that is. So, oh, <laughs> it happens to me all the time. People think I'm her. Oh, really? Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Oh, um, I was, um, I think I might have told you this, but I was at a hotel and somebody recognised me and they said, oh, oh, I know you. Farrell. That's right. Nearly. Ooh. Colin Farrell. <laughs> <laughs> and Jackie went, I bloody wish. <laughs> I bet she did. There's a lovely, um, Dara O'Brien's got a lot. Sorry, we've got off topic already. Yeah. But it's a good story. He's got a lovely story about someone coming up to him and going, hello, Al Murray. No. And he goes. And he goes, no, try again. And the bloke went, oh, all right then, pub landlord. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Oh, God. Yeah, it sounds yeah. better. But anyway, we are actually talking about comedy this week, Angela. Our, subject, our subject is comedy. I chose it this week. Um, mm-hmm. Angela, I'm sad to see that your long run on Mock the Week has come to an end. Um, yeah, just not mine, to be clear. I no, haven't been sacked. But you've been a, no, no, you've not been. You're not Liz Truss of comedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but, uh, you know, a long running satire show uh, on which you were a regular guest, the most regular woman guest, I think, or the most appearances. I was indeed, yeah. Um, um, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting, off the back of that, to take our listeners back to a time when TV satire didn't exist and would never even be considered. Can you imagine a version of Britain where there was simply no satire? Yeah, I know. The idea of taking a piss out of the authority. Our elders and betters, John, was considered in very poor taste, actually, and extreme bad manners. Yeah, incredible. And that's pretty much what post-war Britain was for a bit. Yeah, and we sort of take it completely for granted that you, Angela can go and mock the week. Well, until the BBC mm-hmm. accept. Uh, or yes, that... Thank you, John. Just keep reminding <laughs> me about that. I've got a mortgage to pay. Or that you grew up with spitting image. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> and um, we're surrounded with jokes about those in authority on TV, radio, websites, magazines, stand-up comedy, Angela. And it's I think yeah. it's almost our default way of talking about our politicians is to take the piss out of them. But not so long ago, the exact opposite was true. And broadcasters and journalists and that would would only discuss politicians, royalty, judges and the rest of the upper classes in terms of extreme deference and respect. Yeah. So that's what we're going to look at this week, sort of how that cloak of deference was ripped away and how it came to be that we're allowed to laugh at our elders and betters. Yes, indeed. And of course, we should say we know satire wasn't invented in the early 1960s. Um, It goes right back to antiquity, doesn't it? The Romans, lots of Roman satire. Yeah. Um, Love that stuff. You know, the ancient Greeks loved it, didn't they? Yeah. Um, and of course, in the Middle Ages, you could always get an easy laugh by referencing the chastity and purity of monks in the monasteries. That was a exactly right. Yeah, hack, that, hack in those days. That was that, that was that was your opener, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but and then you got your Jonathan Swift and your Alexander Pope. Every age found its own way uh, to poke fun at those in charge. It's just that in the age of mass media, radio, and television. It took a very long time for us to admit in public to ourselves that our betters were, in fact, no better than us. In fact, they're pretty often quite a lot worse. Yeah, it feels like, doesn't it? Because you had things like Punch magazine and stuff. You had satirical publication, but it, it's that visual media where it didn't seem to... Yeah, but even Punch. What it, people you know, were sort of on their best behaviour. I mean, I know it wasn't exactly private eye, but it was... Yeah. It was more a commentary rather than satire about it particularly. Yeah, they were... Punch I, I think Punch was supposed to be humorous. Uh, without yeah. being uh, having anything particular to say. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying it was rubbish before satire came no, along in the early 60s. it just wasn't political, yeah. right? Yeah. There weren't these social themes that there are now. So you had goons were sort of sub- subversive, but they weren't satirical. Yeah. Um, and they didn't necessarily have to say, but we're not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just yeah. that it didn't exist. Like comedy doesn't have to have something to say. No. And of course, in those days, and of course, comedy at that time completely male dominated which meant that they were coming out of a war yeah so the the comedy was dominated by the um entertainment's national service association lots of the the, that had provided entertainment yeah um during the war for the troops um yeah you know it's those comedians yeah and they were i'm sure they were they amused people at the time. Some of it doesn't stand up that well when you watch it now. The sort of, no. you know, um, the old radio sketches. And, you know, I'm pretty sure something like 
Arthur Askey's Bumblebee song was shit at the time as well. <laughs> I mean, you know, oh, what jolly good fun to be a great big, 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 buzzy, buzzy bee. Arthur, it's I not mean, funny, say, mate. It's not you funny. You say it's shit. You say it's shit, but you remember the words. Oh, God. Why do I even know that? I mean, I don't know, John. But, I mean, all this time, you know, even though the goons were sort of crazy, in the Ooh. British media, it was just the universally presented script that politicians were honourable, devoted public servants from a ruling class that knew how to do things properly and that we should all be extremely grateful to them. And, and I think many people believe this to be the fact and actually would have been deeply offended if anyone suggested otherwise, which is sort of sort of exactly what happened. Well, yeah, there was. this is an era where, you know, people... Uh, it, it's like the doctor syndrome as well, isn't it? If a doctor told you something, you didn't question it. If a politician Absolutely told right. you something, you didn't question it. And also, you didn't have your Paxmans or your Andrew Mars on the telly, yes. you know, keeping them on their toes. People would ask them the questions that they were prepared to answer. Right? I put it to you, Prime Minister, that you're very, very good. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like a Harry Enfield sketch, those things, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. This, start, this started to sh- change a bit. And we think the watershed moment, probably in that post-war attitude, um, to our politicians was the Suez crisis. Yes. I know a podcast about that, John. Very good one, I hear. Oh, yes, I've heard it. Um, in, actually, I haven't. I haven't listened to it. But I'm sure it was, it was great. Um, in 1956, so it became very clear that the Prime Minister um, had lied and that when he said he hadn't lied, he was lying about not having lied. Yeah. So that was a big shock and moment of reckoning for British politics. Yeah. And I mean... Politicians caught in a lie is something that could never happen. I know, thankfully. Today. Those days are, are um, long gone. I mean, the Tories still won in 1959, though. I mean, that was because it was a sort mm. of uh, patriotic adventure that Labour hadn't been sufficiently enthusiastic about. Um, mm. um, but there was a movement then of a new generation who had not grown up in the war and finally were finding their own voice. And they were going, hang on, mm. maybe it doesn't always have to be like this. Exactly. So where does this revolution against the upper class male Oxbridge educated elite spring from? Oh. Well, obviously from the upper class male Oxbridge educated elite. <laughs> Hurrah! Thank God they're here to that's, save the day. That's the thing about privilege, isn't it? And reaction against privilege. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it, yeah. Well, it, it starts with those who already have privilege themselves. Yeah. Most of the suffragettes were posh. Yeah. Right? I hear there's even some quite privileged people in the Labour Party, John. I, um, I, I find that hard to believe. We are all <laughs> sons of the working class toil. Yeah, right, in Maidenhead. Sure. Um, um, I think yeah. I do think it's easier sometimes, isn't it, to point out the flaws in a group or stand up to a group when you're part of the group. Yeah. It's much easier to stand up and go, hang on guys, we're not being fair, than to say, hang on guys, you're not being fair. Yes, I suppose that's Cause it. Because you, you don't, they, they, those people you're speaking to don't have that power over you. Yes, and, and the trailblazers are always going to come from, you know, the people with the best opportunities and the and the confidence and the and the freedom. You can't blame the suffragettes for being posh women. They were like, no. uh, you know, they... Uh, they had the opportunity yeah. and the time. Yeah, and, um, and then the sort you know, of... And they weren't trying to feed their children. Yeah, quite, yeah. So, yes, the, uh, what we call the... Uh, you know, the 1960s satire boom was primarily male. It was primarily upper middle class. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not valid now when we look back at it because it opened the door for more comics and more change and helped change social attitudes, perhaps, we'll discuss. Anyway, let's go back to 1960. A university review show went up to the Edinburgh Festival entitled Beyond the Fringe. It starred... Some unknown studenty types called Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, Jonathan Miller and Alan Bennett. Now, can you imagine them as like mm. students? That must have been funny, wasn't it? Uh, unbearable, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in my head, I always thought it was a review from the Cambridge Footlights. But reading up uh, uh, for this podcast, because, um, you know, and the first Footlights show to pave the way for their sort of dominance of comedy for so long. But in fact, mm. it was more, much more diverse than that, Angela. It was a, yeah. it was a combination of Cambridge and Oxford. Oh, well, in that case, <laughs> um, uh, that's much more representative of society as a whole. Then. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's, um, uh, yeah, Peter Cook and Jonathan Miller from Cambridge and Dudley Moore and Alan Bennett were at Oxford. Uh, and they were sort of brought together to put on a best of show sort of thing. Like the boat race. It's always the same two universities in the final, isn't it? Where's yeah. the rowing team from University of Luton? Where's That's that one? It. Where's the University of South Bank? They're, yeah. they're never allowed exactly. to take part. <laughs> no. 
Um, and I imagine uh, Edinburgh itself was a bit smaller, well, by which I mean the Fringe Festival. Yeah. It was a bit smaller and easier back then. They probably... They were probably doing their show at venue number one. And accommodation <laughs> yeah. was a luxury townhouse for a shilling a month. It's like that now, isn't it? <laughs> exactly like that now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. guaranteed to yeah. make Absolutely. loads of money. Yeah. Oh, I'm rolling in it, yeah. John. <laughs> <laughs> but this re- this review that they took up to, to Edinburgh Festival was revolutionary because for the first time, um, people were hearing from a new generation, as I say, who'd grown up after the war, saw the decline in empire and British status around the world. And they poked fun at those things. Um and, and the people still clinging to the old values and the, and the sort of fading certainties. And, and this is the same time, isn't it, where theatre and literature, of course, have the angry young men. You've got your John Osborne, your Alan Silito. Yeah. But the, these people weren't shouting at the establishment. This was much worse. These people were laughing at them. Yes, exactly. And I think yeah. that's interesting, that is it, because being shouted at means you're being provocative. If mm. you're making people angry, you're being provocative. Whereas if you're being laughed at, then you're being humiliated. And that's right. a different thing. Yeah. Isn't it? It's I'm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the um, the era of the angry young men started a few years before this, really, like fifty six mm. is yeah, uh, look 50s, back in anger. And, but but so it took a few years for the for the comedy people to catch up. But these guys didn't care who they mocked. There was a sketch mocking Shakespearean drama, Angela. <gasps> How could they? <laughs> oh, saucy Worcester. That's the line I remember. From it. <laughs> uh, and there was you know, plenty of sketches that were just silly comedy and not satirical at all. In fact, they were themselves rather taken aback when their show was held as a satirical masterpiece because that wasn't really what they'd attended at all. They were just writing about stuff they cared about. There was a piece about capital punishment. Hanging was still on the statutes back then, of course. And there was a sketch which... One sketch which really upset people, which was a a parody of a World War II drama in which uh, a man sacrifices his life for no discernible purpose. And of course... I mean, these men owe the freedom they have to say these things in public because that generation laid down their life. So yeah, they yeah. should exercise that freedom. You get a little loop here, can't you, with that? Yeah, yeah. No, they were sort of saying, yeah, you, you have no right to say this. We fought for your right to say to this, so say don't this. say it. Oh, hang on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they mocked Churchill and they mocked Macmillan, who was the prime minister at the time. And this was either thrilling or appalling, depending on your point of view. And it was very sort of, I remember there's a brilliant, um, they do a sketch about civil defence. That's the, on uh, right. Beyond the Fringe. That one always sticks in my head because obviously that's the yeah. thing I'm nerdy about. But it's very simple staging, very, yeah. Yeah, no scenery or set and just these young men in their sort of uh, sketches. And then, I mean, you know, in the old reviews, there were dancing chorus girls, you know, but they yeah, had uh, Dudley Moore doing uh, Boogie Woogie Piano. Uh, and that itself turned into a sketch of its own when he couldn't find a way to end the song. So there was a, a sort of yeah. comedy music as well. Um, yeah. And it was revolutionary, course, you know. Yeah. By today's standards, much of it seems pretty tame. But yeah. the massive popularity of this showed that people were desperate for something like this. They'd been starved of this sort of comic truth, really, or this speaking truth to power thing. Yeah. People on stage saying what lots of them have all been saying in the pubs or in the workplaces and that those in charge actually were a bit shit and we shouldn't have to doff our caps to them. Yeah, exactly right. And the and the show became a huge word of mouth hit and they got a West End theatre and it became the hot new ticket to see. But uh, Before coming to London, Angela, it played in Cambridge, where it was a huge success and in wow. Brighton, where it was a massive flop and lots of very offended people walked out in disgust. Well, we are very famously pro-establishment here in Brighton, John. So <laughs> I think Brighton you know. was a different place down there. Actually. I think it was, <laughs> it was a very different place was, at that before. Time, it was yeah. also all the you know uh, people who couldn't afford to live in London. But it was more sort of old ladies and tea rooms, wasn't it back then? Well, it's before the universities. But I think ah. when the universities came along, that's what changed ah. the sort of demographic of Brighton. I think before that, it was basically Eastbourne. Right. Oh God. Well, anyway, it opened yeah. eventually in London to packed houses and gloating reviews. Um, yeah. Macmillan went to see it for himself. Yep. Yeah, Didn't just he? yeah, Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah. Just, just as uh, Maggie Thatcher went to see the satirical West End show about Dennis Thatcher, I think it's just good PR to be seen to go to these things. Do you know what I mean? It, well, that's like going, you, you know, that's telling people it's not bothering you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Like, this isn't bothering me. This isn't touching me. I, yeah. I went to see it myself. Yeah. So, uh, P- yeah. Peter Cook actually added an extra line uh, mocking Macmillan for turning up, and the other three were really embarrassed about this. I mean, it's hard to comprehend oh, really? now, but you know, yeah. This had, I've seen The Crown, actually. That yeah. is in the episode of The Crown, doesn't it? I that think there is. They, I think there is, yeah. turns up. Yeah. yeah. Um, they made an LP recording uh, by this young record producer called George Martin. And, no, uh, whatever happened to him? Well, he went on to produce <laughs> another four young men who shook things up a bit. But uh, interesting <laughs> fact alert, the laughter from the audience in Sgt Pepper's on that track is the audience from Beyond the Fringe. 
Oh, really? Yeah. So he'd harvested that yeah. laughter? Yeah. So I wonder if that still exists anywhere. I could do with some of that. <laughs> well, you can, maybe you can take off Sergeant Pepper's. No, no one will recognise it. It'll be fine. Yeah. Um, so because they weren't on the BBC or whatever, they had no bosses to tell them what they could and couldn't say. Yeah. You know, so although their scripts did still have to be approved by the Lord Chamberlain, that was a thing then. It's just that Lord Chamberlain, yeah. who's the most senior member of the royal household, uh, responsible for private chambers and arranged ceremonies and entertainments for the court and all that stuff. But since 1737, their duty also included censoring or okaying scripts for theatre, right? That's the insane, isn't it? Scripts have had to be licensed for performance by the Lord Chamberlain's office under the Theatres Act 1843, which was a continuation of the Licensing Act 1727, which was a measure initially introduced to protect Robert Walpole's, the Prime Minister uh, in the 18th century, uh, to protect his administration from political satire. So there we are. So yeah. they are, they were nervous about it. Yeah. The, the elite, you know, and, and uh, but that act was abolished in 1968, but censorship carried on as late as 1966. But in yeah. this case, the Lord Chamberlain, so this we're in 1960 now, yeah. The Lord Chamberlain chose not to censor beyond the fringe, yeah. But amazing that that yeah. was a thing that you had to get your script yeah. approved by this member of the royal household, and they, and he exercised his right to you know veto things. So I think an mm. Edward Bond play was stopped in 66 because it didn't, it didn't, he didn't think it was a good taste or whatever. I guess that that job is sort of done now by theatres, isn't it? If they think that it will affect them commercially. Yes, or uh, there are occasional, I mean, it's a long time ago now, but uh, Mary Whitehouse sued the National Theatre for uh, the Romans in Britain. And uh, I think she won her case um, for the under sort of obscenity laws. So, yeah, and and I suppose now it would be uh, libel would be the thing they'd be worried about. Yeah. 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 But incredible that um, it was brought in to stop political satire in the theatres in 1737 and it was still in in place in the 1960s. Bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. So most of Beyond the Fringe was written by Peter Cook and he really is the godfather of 60s satire. Um, he uh, he was a, you know, establishment family, you know, he was from an establishment family. He'd taken his exams to enter the foreign office. His parents imagined he might be a civil servant or diplomat somewhere in the, in the empire, but... Um, he, uh, but humiliating the prime minister in public showed he wasn't that diplomatic, as it yeah, turned out. It's not a good look on your CV, is it? Yeah. Before going for that job, yeah. why do you want to be a diplomat? Oh yeah, no, don't don't look at that. Don't watch that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in 1961, Peter Cook opens the Establishment Club, which is um, its famous club in Greek Street in London, Soho. Yeah, and it's a club where you could go and watch satirical comedy, and which was inspired, he said, by the Berlin Cabaret. It did so much to stop the rise of Adolf Hitler. <laughs> uh, but because it was a private members club, yeah. it didn't have to submit scripts to the Lord Chamberlain. So yeah. there was a loophole for these yeah. performances that they could then properly say whatever they like. Yeah, but and so we take it for granted today that you can go and see some comedy in a club and see some stand up in a room above a pub or to go to the comedy yeah. store if you're in London or, or wherever. But this just wasn't a thing back then. So he sort of invented the idea of a British comedy club with the establishment. Um, you'd have working men's clubs where people would go, you know, there'd be comedy on, but not a sort of yeah. members club where there'd be satire on. Um, and you could go and see John. Yeah, that's going to be very, you could go and see, you know, Take My Wife. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, or, or just sort of a string of probably racist or Irish jokes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but not, yeah, anything that's attacking the, the, establishment. the government. That's why it's called, it yeah. was the establishment as in the building but and the, and the organisation, yeah. but also the establishment, which was a clever title. John Byrne and John Fortune performed there. Eleanor Bron was part of that set, about the only woman really in that set. And there was an album recorded of their sketches. Cook invited Lenny Bruce to come over from the States and he was subsequently banned from the UK for a year uh, for his uh, yeah. outrageous act. Barry Humphreys performed there as Dame Edna Everidge. I'm guessing that was probably the first UK outing of that character. It probably would have been, wouldn't it? And Cook opened another club in New York. So, it's, you know, it's pretty amazing. Which, which, after what has happened to um, Lenny Bruce, is quite a risky move. Yes, quite. Yeah, yeah. Actually, to, yeah, yeah. Lenny Bruce was obviously um, convicted of all sorts of obscenity laws, wasn't mm, he? And mm. Yeah. So to then go open the establishment there. Yeah. And then just down the road in what was then CD Soho, there was a new magazine being launched by a bunch of old public school boys. So it's, all these things are from a bunch of old public yeah, school boys. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's Private Eye, yeah. uh, which was produced cheaply using the new 
photolitho offset method. <laughs> Litho, I, I think right. we I think say Litho, photo Damn it, I nearly got away with that. Yeah, just say it fast. Which is produced cheaply using the new photolitho offset method, which meant anyone with a typewriter and a bit of letter set. Letter set. God, you don't see that anymore, do you? You don't. No. Um, any, anyone with that could produce a magazine. It's all uh, rubbing down letter set and typing it up and photocopying it. It's amazing, really, that things hadn't moved on. Private Eye was edited by Richard Ingrams uh, and it had early contributions from Willie Rushton and Christopher Booker and Paul Foote, amazingly. And they sold Paul it in Foote, pubs. But, but, which we should say because there's a modern comedian called Paul oh, Foote. Oh, right. Not that one. No, the uh, <laughs> the, the, the uh, political journalist campaigner after whom the yeah. Paul Foote Award is, uh, is, is named. It was originally, yeah. the, the magazine was originally sold in pubs around central London and, and it really took off around the time of the Profumo scandal uh, in uh, 63. It was the first, actually, the first publication to whisper any connection between the Minister for War and the Russian naval attache spy. I don't think people realise quite how often that Private Eye would be sort of leaking these, yeah. dripping these big stories long before the nationals yeah. can. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, right till today, they will you know, sneak in a few little lines and a few yeah. sort of horrifying nudge, statistics nudge. Yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and then as now, it was a mixture of sort of satirical articles, gossip and serious investigative journalism. Uh, and then yeah. when it ran into financial difficulty early on, it was purchased by Peter Cook. And um, it was at one point, they actually produced it out of the building uh, where he had the establishment club. So Peter Cook was only 25. He had a hit West End show, first London comedy club. He owned Private Eye. And incredibly, his mother's still hoping he might go into the diplomatic service somewhere in the empire. But Cook said Britain had run out of colonies, <laughs> which is Excellent. a good yeah. point. And the, the BBC, of course, must be, they look at the success of Beyond the Fringe. They will have some of that. So they commissioned a pilot based on the performances that had been put on at the establishment club. Um, but when there was a delay in giving it the green light, Cook went, sod this, and buggered off to America. So you have to understand, Angela, back then, TV commissioners were very slow to make a decision. Um, they <laughs> prevaricated. They didn't ring you back. They changed their mind. I mean, you know, it's a different time. Different time. Oh, don't get me started, John. Honestly, I had a commissioner once give feedback on something I pitched that I, I they thought I was too old to front it. And I thought I wasn't when we pitched the bloody thing. <laughs> I know someone who um, sent their script a birthday card because it was a full year since they'd sent it in. <laughs> Oh, God. So oh, so the Beyond the Fringe team went off to America, to Broadway, to do their show. And even uh, JFK went to see it. Um, but being out of the country meant that the Young Turks and British satire were not in a position to capitalise on all the opportunities offered by the sort of fire they just lit. Um, oh. And back in London, the BBC finally decided that maybe there was a popular TV show in this satire thing. And they got lifelong conservative Ned Sherin to produce it. How do you know Ned Sherring was a lifelong conservative? <laughs> because he told me so, Angela, in a postcard he wrote to me after I was a guest on Loose Ends in the 90s. Did he yeah, really? Yeah. So he had, me on, he, he had me on for Things Can Only Get Better. And uh, yeah. he wrote me a thing saying, thank you so much for coming on the show. I opened your book about being a Labour activist. I enjoyed it very much. And I say that as a lifelong conservative. I thought, bloody hell, that's, a, <laughs> wow. that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, so when Peter Cook discovered there was going to be a new satirical TV show fronted by pushy wannabe David Frost, he was like disgusted and angry. He claimed Frost had stolen his performing style and his jokes and he dubbed Frost the bubonic plagiarist. Oh, I see what he's done uh, then. Yeah. Play, play, yeah, it doesn't quite work that pun, does it? But it's, yeah. yeah, near enough. It's, um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Because they've gone off to America, so I suppose they've just left this vacuum yeah. that yeah. whoever was around could feel. So this is when the satire boom goes mainstream. This might be a good time to take a break, John. Yes. As we are hitting the mainstream. And we could take this moment to pen a hard-hitting satirical sketch that says, I put it to you that the Prime Minister is not very good. Gasps of shock <gasps> from the studio audience, laughter and rioting in equal measure. <laughs> What's really funny is that in the current situation, people don't know when we've recorded this. Yes. They, they've got three guesses who the Prime Minister right now could be. <laughs> could be any, maybe four. If it goes, who knows? Maybe four. Could be another, who knows? Maybe soon I could be out in a week. <laughs> oh, we'll see you after these messages from our sponsors. Okay, we are back uh, talking about the satire boom of the early 1960s. Uh, so, Angela, it's a particularly interesting subject for both of us because we've both sort of done satire as a thing in our lives. Uh, and someone who spent a big part of my life writing satire from like weekending when I was 
as young as Peter Cook from Spitting Image, so have <laughs> I got news for you. I sort of came to the conclusion that satire might not be a tool of rebellion, but more of a sort of release valve that helps keep everything in place. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I, I think it feels like a bridge between whatever's going on in Westminster and just people day to day. Yeah. And it's a way of presenting what's going on in Westminster to people who aren't following it, if you see what I mean. Right, so have that's I got, how, that's I how people get their politics, is via have I got news yeah, for you? Yeah, so or... I think, on Mock the Week Mock or whatever, week, yeah. I think there's a difference between, so I do news quiz on Radio 4 and yeah. Mock the Week, on, and I always say Mock the Week is sort of news quiz for people who don't watch the news. Right, God, okay. So it's, whereas news quiz on Radio 4 is more, I think, sort of aimed at people who know what's going on in the news, who know yeah. who all the big players are and some of the smaller players and all of that. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing, because I never set out, to be a satirist, and I don't feel like I am one. I feel no. like that's a very grand I think term, word, isn't it? Well, it, and and it it conjures up exactly those Oxbridge middle class yeah. clever boys. You know, that's yeah. who it conjures up. And actually, I yeah, want to be know, one of them. It's not that yeah. I I don't want to be one of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm just a comedian, and I write about my life. And sometimes my life is affected by decisions made by those in power. And so I write yeah. about that. But you and come I think with an attitude, to, you know. You come with an attitude. Yeah. And, and, a, and a, as a oh, sort of, I'm not saying I'm not. Yeah. You know, in my life, politically engaged, but that's not. I haven't sat down and gone right. I'm going to be a political comedian. Politics are yeah. about life, right? And yeah, and I think yeah. it's also harder to ignore them now than ever before because politics doesn't happen behind closed doors anymore. It happens on Twitter. It happens on television, twenty four seven. It happens. You know, we watch. Last week, so we're recording this a week after Liz Truss resigned, yeah. and you know, everyone was just watching it in real time unfolding. That, but which yeah. wouldn't have happened I mean, before. I mean, it's funny. It's hard to. Uh, I mean, you. Know, uh, we're talking uh, in the week that uh, the revived Spitting Image has been cancelled. And as someone who wrote ten series of the original Spitting Image, I think the atmosphere in which that show was being presented had fundamentally changed. It's very hard to put anything into the mouth of Trump or Boris Johnson. You know, as as a satirical writer, that they might not have said anyway. No, well, they, they sort I, of I come self-satirising, these guys. Yeah, when when Donald Trump was elected, I remember lots of people saying to me, oh, this is a gift to you comedians. And I said, it isn't, because no. he's anything funny he's done himself. I said, it's a gift in that he's given us a box of chocolates and the fat fuck's <laughs> eaten them all. Like, that's the only... <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, there you are, you see, so, being satirical already. But, yeah. Um, but you know you know what I mean? And I, and I just think there's... Yeah, it, it, it's sort of... It, things have got to such a ridiculous point that actually it's harder to find the joke. And also, with things like Twitter... Yes. Everyone's already... The, the it's second of news story breaks. Somebody's all done All the it. obvious jokes are out there. Yeah, yes. All the jokes are out there already. So it's hard to find other angles and hard to find a way in the things, that isn't... Yeah, if you're writing a topical show, don't look at Twitter because someone will have done the joke you've come up with and then you'll be exactly. accused of nicking it, ripping it off. I mean, the point... My central point, actually, was... And it's the thing I did on Newsnight, was that... Uh, it might be that, you know, in places where comedy is not allowed, uh, you don't get that release of laughter that comedy satire provides. And instead, you, it turns to anger. And so, you know, uh, outrageous government decision is processed through laughter and ridicule is a sort of British sort of uh, release valve and the, 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 the anger is dissipated. I, I don't know. I think it I, might be a, prevent revolution rather than, you know, uh, cause it. I think, I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to quantify those things, but I do think satire, there's a reason why totalitarian regimes want to imprison satirists, yes. as, along with poets and yes. playwrights or whatever. Because I think what a a sort of um, dictator-type figure, it, you don't get to be a dictator while having a sense of humour about yourself. No, quite. Right. Yeah. They, they, I can't think of a dictator who makes jokes about themselves. No, no. You know, they're very because you have to have that narcissism. You have to believe that you are. Yeah. So therefore, you can't let anyone else do yeah. it. You know, you yeah. can't take it. And those people can give it out and can't take it. It's those but sometimes, people, isn't it? Which yeah. is why I think that in a totalitarian regime that and also because what a satirist can do, what a poet can do, what a playwright can do is present information to the public in a disguised way that might not be immediately yes, that, obvious. Like the old court jester used to do it. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. And there was a, yeah. there was a, there was a, 
a battle back in the Middle Ages where they didn't dare tell the king that they'd lost it and they got the jester to do it in some jokes, you know, and it was like the only palatable way to tell the king this had happened. But I mean, you're right, yeah. there is no satire in Iran. In fact, I don't know if you know Shapi Kassandi, her dad ran the sort of Iranian private eye before uh, the revolution and that's why yeah. they had to flee and live here and, you know, that's... So she has very strong... Uh, opinions about it and it's interesting to hear them. and with what's happening in iran at the moment yeah. it does make me feel very um privileged isn't the right word but i am very aware that there's things that i've said on tv yeah that in other countries would get you locked up would get me locked yeah, up yeah um you know and things that i say on tv without thinking about it you know That's the a... only the only thing i the only um sort of payback i get from that is some you know dickhead on Twitter yeah, or whatever. Yeah. I don't get imprisoned and I don't get told I can't say things. But then you go on the other end, you get uh, politicians come on panel shows like Have I Got News For You? And, you know, you think, oh, great, we'll have a pop at them. Oh, I remember Christine Hamilton and Neil Hamilton coming on um, uh, Have I Got News For You? And Ian Hislop was hitting her with all these uh, dodgy facts about what they'd done. And she, they were laughing it off. And I think it sort of did their standing good to be seen to take it on the chin and have a bit of a laugh. And um, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, exactly. We, we ended yeah. up with Boris Johnson. Yeah. It's, it's quite possible you know, that without... A lot these... of people blame Have I Got News yeah. For You. I think that's, there's some the truth The situation in we're in now. Yeah, I don't, yeah I don't, absolutely. You know, he became mayor of London because he was well, on that fun comedy show, which is a weird... Once, you have, once you have the butt of the jokes appearing on the show... Then they're complicit, and they're yeah. seen to be taking that. You're you're then complicit with that. You know you can't, you you don't bring them on the show and tear them down. That's not what happens because an edit yeah. happens and thing. You yeah. know. So if even if that was the intention, that that was never going to happen. And what, all you're doing is humanising them and making their terrible ideas not seem so terrible. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Anyway, back mm. to back to the satire anyway, boom yes. of the 1960s. It's 1962. So it's 1962. John is born. That's when you were born, it wasn't was, it, John, in 1962? In the Irish quarter of Maidenhead in Berkshire. It was a great year that's for satire. John O'Farrell born in Maidenhead. A time of change. <laughs> the first Beatles single. Jamaica gains its independence. And Golden Wonder Crisps introduced cheese and onion flavour. I found, that, well, I found yeah. that out on Wikipedia. <laughs> what a time to be young. I was, probably, oh. I was probably a bit too young to appreciate it, to be honest. <laughs> They're just whizzing them up with your rusks. Yeah, they? yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, then in November 1962 comes a brand new television programme that brought to the masses the thrilling new satire boom that's so far only been enjoyed by those who went to the theatre or a Soho private club. Yes. And that was, that was the week that was. TW3. Yes. As it became known, it was a topical sketch show broadcast live on a Saturday night and it opened with a song from Millicent Martin. That was the week that was, it's over now, let it go. And then, then loads <laughs> of sort of uh, topical lines that sort of rather creaky and sort of sort of worked. You know, um, just for anyone listening, doesn't know Millicent Martin, uh, Daphne's mum in Frasier. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know Daphne's that. Daphne's mum in Frasier. Yeah, yeah there you something. go. That's amazing. And she's also in, if you've watched Grace and Frankie on Netflix, the thing with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. Oh. She plays their friend in that. Oh, well. cool. Uh, there you go. Yeah, and then there's another song in it um, uh, from Lance Percival, who, uh, who I remember seeing him when I was a young Turk at sort of, BBC Radio Light Entertainment Party. We were nudging each other, going, oh "My God, that's Lance Percival from that was the week that was." And um, and th this was in the eighties. And then I went to the BBC Radio Light and Party a few years ago, and some young comedy writers are going, oh, "Are you John O'Farrell?" And I thought, "Oh no, I'm I'm <laughs> this I'm now Lance Percival. I'm that guy who was like, God, I'm you. I loved your stuff in the eighties and nineties. You know, that's you know? what I did to you, John, isn't it? <laughs> yes, you like, do. You, you came, do. Yeah." And so you came to my end of a show, tweeted about it. And I went, oh, my God, God that's that old bloke who wrote spit in image. Oh, dear. You came to my show. Oh, well, <laughs> it happens to all of us. But the show, that was week that was. It tackled such subjects as the monarchy and the decline of the empire, nuclear disarmament, the illegality of homosexuality. Um, I remember there's a sketch where they had a minister going, look, homosexuality is a disease and the best cure is to lock the victims up with loads of other men <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, there was the class system and the BBC itself. So, you know, it, it, it was a very, uh, it had a very broad range. It had plenty of subjects to tackle. If you think how conservative Britain was back then, there's one really dodgy sketch. I mean, they, there was some, you know, uh, there were lynchings happening in the deep South of America. So they, they got uncle Sam, Melissa Martin dressed up as uncle Sam and they sing this minstrel song and the white cast black up and sing the backing vocals. But like the black and white minstrels did on the BBC, 
different yeah. times, Angela. Yeah, it's in the context of the time. Yeah, they use the n. Best they use the n word, um, and you know, in their pro- in, in their protest song about racism. Again, tricky one for the anniversary repeats. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, it, and the show itself was sort of very original in its um, in its presentational style. There was no attempt to hide its cameras. They allowed the microphone boom to intrude, and you know, they revolved and. They revealed the, the sort of nuts and bolts of the studio technology. Yeah, I think it you know, made it feel modern, but also maybe authentic and honest, I think. Yeah, well, I think that's that sort of very Brechtian yeah. kind of way of doing performance then that was so, you know, that wasn't asking you to suspend disbelief. It was like, yeah, we asked just some blokes in a theatre doing a thing. Yeah, yeah, and it, but, it gives it all you know, authenticity, I think. He did a sketch about South Africa, didn't they? The yeah. BBC Director General ruled that the BBC did not have to show its usual impartiality when it came to the issue of racism and apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. And that was important, A, for setting the moral boundaries of that age. And I wish the BBC would have the balls to do that <laughs> I now. know, I know. So they went, um, they because, went there is... you know, they, they, these days on the BBC, go, oh. they're not as clear-cut and going, this is right and this is wrong. They're no, not. Then you go, always. well, some people think the, the planet is clo- uh, warming up. All scientists... And one yeah. crank said there isn't. So let's hear both sides of that argument. And it's exactly. like, yeah. So the DG went. Emily Maitlist did a really amazing tweet about that recently. And I'm going to paraphrase it and get it wrong. But she said something like, you know, when we were talking about, I think it was in context of Brexit right. um, and the economy. And she said, you know, when we were talking about the economics of, of Brexit, we would have, um, you know, a, a choice of a thousand people we could talk to about the negative impact on. Right. And then we'd spend all day ringing round to try and find someone who'd talk wow. the other side of it. And yeah. those two people were presented as, as equal, you know, as, e- yeah, equal yeah, yeah. Um, opinions. It's insane. And the direct, the, so for the DG to go, yes, the BBC is impartial, but yeah, racism does not fall into that category. Racism is bad and we're not having both points of view. I think that was that was good. There was a yeah. there was a you know, but they went much further than just that. So they there was a sketch aimed at Henry Brooke, the home secretary, who was really torn apart in a visceral this is your life sketch. Uh which sort of tainted him forever after. Uh but to be fair, he was the most backward, nasty, reactionary old bastard to run the home office right up until the 2020s. It broke all records on that front. <laughs> so meanwhile in the government they're going, what do we do about these young men attacking us every Saturday night to millions of viewers? The Postmaster General, who's responsible for broadcasting, Reginald Bevins, he wanted something done about the programme. And he put a note on Macmillan's desk saying, what are we going to do about this show? And uh, Harold Macmillan, who was quite a wily politician, said absolutely nothing whatsoever, which is interesting. Yeah. Which yeah. is uh, probably the smartest way to deal with it. Absolutely. And it got 12 million viewers. Yeah, yeah. So that's amazing. You know, in the 60s. That's that's... incredible. And sometimes it overran. So in the second series, the BBC scheduled repeats of The Third Man after the show. So David Frost would read out the plot summaries of the episode after their show. So BBC (laughs) had to abandon the repeats. Yes. And if you look at the writer's credits for this, that was a week that was, they're insane. It's like anyone who was anyone back there, if you're a a, a sort of posh bloke or a well-connected bloke. Dennis Potter, David Nobbs, John Betjeman, Gerald Kaufman, Roald Dahl, Frank Muir, Ken Tynan, Keith Waterhouse, Peter Cook, John Cleese, probably Avita Peron, Pope John the 13th, Pelé, Charles de Gaulle and Skippy the Bush Kangaroo, you know, anyone. Well, it's more likely to be Skippy the Bush Kangaroo than Avita Peron. She's a woman. I mean, that is a shocking list it is, of it is, just yeah, men. It was just men. I mean, that's, 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 I know. that's, the, that's the year that it was in. And talking of sexism, Angela. Yeah, the show was, um, it was lucky that when it was on air, the Profumo scandal rocked the government. And provided endless comedy and scandal that people were hungry to see satirise. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and uh, yeah, so that was, I mean, like Private Eye, you know, um, uh, these things came along. Satire Boom came hand in hand with the exposing of the government as this corrupt, sleazy, uh, self-serving sort of elite. The vice chairman of the Tory party wrote to BBC Director General Hugh Green uh, that Frost, David Frost, had a hatred of the Prime Minister, which he finds impossible to control. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, and the programme also attracted complaints from the Boy Scout Association about an item questioning the sexuality of its founder, Lord Baden-Powell. Excellent. <laughs> and from the government of Cyprus, which claimed that a joke about their ruler, Archbishop of Makarios, 
was a gross violation of internationally accepted ethics. Good work, guys. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, uh, you know, then Macmillan retired, of course, in after the Profumo scandal, and he was replaced by a prime minister from the House of Lords. So that only sharpened the sense that the government was out of touch and, and ripe for ridicule. Of course. And then in November 1963, uh, JFK was assassinated and the show was due to go out the following day. So they did a non-satirical episode. And they had a tribute song, um, which is called In the Summer of His Years, which was sung by Millicent Martin. But did you know um, that it was kept out of the charts in the US because Connie Francis did a cover? Oh, OK. That made the charts. Yeah. OK. Um, well, I think, it, I think it made a big impression, though, didn't it? Everyone talked about that as a oh, very yeah. sort of communally cathartic sort of uh, piece of broadcasting. Yeah, uh, absolutely. On the, when I was uh, writing on Weekending, because we were supposed to, Weekending used to have to cover every story. So it'd be like the Zeebrugger disaster. And yeah, what do you do? So God. we had this bloke, it was called Richard Quick, and Richard Quick would write a poem. We'd have a really earnest poem about the, you know, the Bradford fire or the bloody, all the disasters there were back at the end of Thatcherism. Um, and it was like, <laughs> this is the special, the phone quick, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, then you had the quiet bit in the middle of the show and everyone would stroke their chin and then get back to the comedy, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to get back from certain stories, yeah, isn't it? I'm I know. glad that the shows that I work on just go. We're not going to do that. You know, not not going to cover that. That's yeah. not for comedy. Yeah, I don't know why yeah. Weekending felt it had to cover these things. It's like yeah. just, just ignore it, move on. It's a comedy show. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you're you shouldn't be listening to Weekending to get your news. No, exactly. So even though yeah. the response to the JFK episode was sort of very widely praised. Uh, that was a week that was, was taken off a, a short notice in December 63. The excuse was given as the coming general election. But I think the director general, frankly, was exhausted and trying to contain these disrespectful young men doing whatever they wanted on a live show every Saturday night on his TV channel. Yeah. So with the, uh, the final monologue about the choice that was about to be put before the country, uh, Hugh Green was on the phone to the writer a couple of hours before the show went out, suggesting that cuts should be made to the script. <laughs> And the writer was 26, and here's the director general asking him to take things out of his script that was rude about the new Incredible. prime minister. Can you imagine it now? Do you ever get phoned on Mot the Week, Angela, saying your jokes? Can the director no. general ring you up and go, can you cut that bit? No, but there are, it's funny, isn't it, how um, we used to get, I used to, like, the executives, the people above, yeah. who aren't the comedians and aren't the writers, yeah. would be, you know, would come to you and say, you can't say that, or I don't think that's funny. And you'd just be, well, actually, can you, do you want to trust me? Because if you were a comedian, you'd be a comedian. Yeah, no, I know. And I, I can remember... That same thing, you tapped on spit image. They'd say, they'd, they'd want to, they'd object because they're embarrassed and worried about getting um, slammed by the government. And then they'd go, the things I just don't think it's funny. And then I remember our yeah. producer used to go, oh, great, if that's your objection... That's outside your remit, actually. So we'll decide yeah. what's funny. And, and also, uh, yeah. let's put it in front of an audience and let them yeah, decide. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I was a bit screwed over, really. Fuck it, I'll say it. Yeah. I was a bit screwed over, really, by, you know, having to do that series of news quiz in the pandemic with no audience. Because yeah. the execs would say, oh, I don't like that joke, don't like that joke. And I had no way of proving that, that I was right because there was no loved, audience. Oh, yeah, that's so shitty, isn't it? Yeah. To yeah. So that was really frustrating. Yeah. Um, and that, that I have had, I had, there was one uh, situation after, do you remember in 2010 when um, uh, Jonathan Ross and Russell Brand oh, had yeah, done yeah, that the, thing, the whole Andrew Saxgate yeah, yeah. thing. And, um, they were really sensitive after that, weren't they? Radio 2 particularly, because it happened yeah. on Radio 2. Yeah. And they and they, they present, you know, they were a family channel. They, yeah. said they were really nervous. And I was doing Wogan, um, uh, the Wogan show live from the Savoy Theatre. Right. And it was on... It was a children in need special, so I was doing sort of four or five minutes of stand up and then uh, being interviewed by Terry Wogan, and they were so nervous, and I had to send the, a wow. transcript of my stand up in first. And I had this is how nervous they were. I had a joke in the transcript, and it was all just observational comedy. It was yeah. no satire, yeah. no nothing like that. And I had a joke about going on caravanning holidays when I was a kid. Right, right. I had a routine about yeah. you know how rubbish caravan holidays are. And they didn't want me to do it because at that time, the Dale Farm evictions were happening, you know, like, when they were moving travellers out of that. Don't my, say my, caravans. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I didn't mention, you know, travellers or wow. gypsy, anything like that. I didn't. Oh, it was God. nothing to do with that at all. It was about caravanning holidays as a kid. And they got really nervous about me doing it because they thought it might make people think about Dale Farm. That's insane. Isn't that mad? That's crazy. Yeah. And I did it in the end. My, my agent at the time went, no, that's. That's ridiculous. She's doing that. Right. Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. the thing about the, uh, that was week that was, it was incredibly hard hitting, 
precisely because mm. there'd never been anything like that before. And so nothing could be that hard hitting ever again, really. So even when I was writing for TV, mm. probably 25 years later, uh, yeah, it was 25 years later because I was born in the same time um that executives who'd grown up with it were going we want something hard-hitting and funny like that was the week that was and I, I wanted to go to it's never gonna you can't lose your virginity twice it's never gonna be like yeah. that again you know well it's uh, a similar thing you know that i mean the last episode of what the week went out last week and i spent all night being tagged in bloody messages from people going oh, we've been rubbish since frankie boyle left bring back frankie not... boyle and, all that. and what i find really <laughs> funny about those people is wow for a start, Frankie Boyle left in 2009, 13 years ago. Wow. Get over it, right? Yeah, yeah. But also, he left to go and do that sketch show on Channel 4. Now, Frankie Boyle doesn't do material like he did that. That dark, horrible stuff. He doesn't do that anymore right. in that way. Yeah. And and also, if you sat in the studio and mopped the week, when you do do a joke that is in any way close to the line or right. a bit over it or a bit yeah. edgy or a bit naughty... The audience go, oh, really? rather than laugh now. Wow. Yeah, like audience... Audiences they change. Don't, they don't accept that it changes. Yeah. And so that's why those jokes never make the edit anymore. So we don't do them anymore. That's so fascinating. So all these people going, oh, it's so tame now since um, Frankie's left. You go, it's tame because the audience that's, won't let you not be That's anymore. the mood of the nation. That's fascinating. That's yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, uh, that was the week that was is over. Uh, the yeah. guys all go their separate ways. Peter Cook uh, had success later in the 60s with uh, not only, but also with Dudley Moore. I would say, oh, yeah. I mean, that was a great show. I mean, I remember watching that as a kid, but I'd say his star never really shone as brightly as it did in the early 60s. So they gave him a, right. a chat show, but it was terrible. And after three episodes, he was replaced by uh, a new boy called Michael Parkinson. So that's how Michael Parkinson oh, got his. Too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So TW3 is not recommissioned, but it did launch the comedy career of pretty much everyone involved. Yeah. Um, but it was hard for a show replicating the formula to have that same impact because yeah. you can't, like you say, you can't be new again. Yeah. Can you? yeah. You can't. Um, the establishment club closed and the satire boom sort of ran out of steam a bit, really, when Labour got elected in 1964. This is probably because under a Labour government, everything is immediately perfect and there's nothing to complain about. <laughs> John, this is this is why you never got the director general of the BBC job. John. Do you know what I wrote? I once applied for it as a joke when I was working at we. Once <laughs> I was working not. it for a week ending, there was an advert in the Guardian under Creative and Media on a Monday, and it said <laughs> it said director general of the BBC. So I I wrote this crappy handwritten letter saying, please can I apply uh, for the job of director in the BBC? I like Blind Day and uh, Coronation Street, or are the, or, or, or are they on the other side? And I got this formal response saying I had not been shortlisted. <laughs> <laughs> which I pinned up on the weekending writer's notice board. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. But no, I think um, I think there is some truth in that Labour government did sort of take slightly puncture the balloon because to have a decrepit old Etonian prime minister replaced by a grammar school boy with a mission to sort of modernise the country meant that a lot of their rage against the ancient establishment was suddenly dissipated, you know. Um, yeah, well, that's it. It's, it's not to say that they weren't deserving of satire, yeah. but that that mock that moment, that that big distance between yeah. the elite and the people is when that's narrows. It's yeah. not quite as yeah much fun. I mean, but when, so yeah. when I was growing up, there was hardly any political satire on the telly at all. It was Mike Yarwood doing impressions of Jim Callahan and Harold Wilson, but it was all cuddly and affectionate. It was all. I remember a song about Jim Callahan. And it was about how you pronounce his name, whether you, the G is soft or hard. That was the level of attack, uh, of, you know, the, yes. the impression. So, yeah, yeah, it wasn't really till Thatcher came along that that form comes into its own again, is it? We've got Not the Nine O'Clock News and then Spitting Image and alternative comedy clubs springing up all over the country. That's, yeah, little five-year-old Angela Barnes looking and going, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be a princess <laughs> or a nurse or a, a mouthy feminist stand-up comedian. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got princess left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Is it too simple to say that satire does best under a conservative government? Yeah. I mean, under New Labour, it's not that there wasn't satire, but there were shows that were punching down. That was the way to be shocking, I suppose, in that sort of, Vic sort of late 90s, yeah. early 2000s. You had your Vicky Pollard and Harry Enfield's Wayne and Wayneetta slob. They were all yeah. punching down at the working class. Yeah, I mean, there was some... But, yeah, there was some I mean, there were always comedy... About shows whether the, yeah. the, 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 there was always satire still under labor like have i got news for you didn't go anywhere no. news quiz didn't go anywhere no and we had and that's where i get upset when um 
you know, I'm on one of those shows and you get accused of Tory bashing, you say that's because they're who they're, they're the people who are in power. Yeah. And that's what these shows are there to do, is to shine a light on whoever's in power. It's yeah. not like Blair didn't get satirised, no. especially around the war in Iraq and everything. Yeah. It's not like News Quiz didn't take his government apart. Although um, in uh, the noughties, you had um, uh, Armando coming up with uh, The Thick of It, which I thought was quite a smart mm. way to do satire because it was suddenly about the, the spin doctors and the people behind the power. And I think that was like yeah. the modern way to do it. You know, spin image, the time for doing spin image had moved on. And to do mm. parody the people behind the, 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 and, the, and the machinations of government, I think was a was a clever way of doing it. Um, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, there's still, you know, we're now around the conservatives and it has to be said, quite a lot to satirise perhaps. Mark the wheat may be gone, <laughs> but I think something else will come along in its place. And um, well, if they of course, it, as you say, you the know. internet. <laughs> yeah, and the internet is such a rich source of political jokes now as well. So that that's never going back yeah. in the box, I don't think. No, absolutely. Um, and, and yeah. you know, like you said, at the top of this section, we don't live in Iran, we don't live in North Korea, and we are allowed to do political comedy. And um, yeah. does it make a difference? And, Who knows? I don't know. I'd say it's part of a healthy democracy. Well, um, I think it's a key, it's a, it's a sign that your democracy is working if you're allowed to do it, isn't it? Because if you're being yeah. silenced, then it's that something's gone horribly wrong. Yeah, but I also wonder if the satire boom of the 60s helped create that atmosphere in which the government was then able to legalise homosexuality and an abortion and abolish capital punishment. Maybe comedy is powerful and maybe it does have this uh, way of uh, affecting the atmosphere of society. I'd, I'd, I've been doing it for a lifetime, Angela, I still don't know. Well, I think it can shine a light on things that people might not have yeah, thought sorry. of that aren't their own, in their own frame yeah. of reference, you know. And so yeah. and you can say things without a political agenda. Well, some of us can, John, um, yeah. without a political agenda. <laughs> so you can highlight the absurdity inherent in a stupid policy just by presenting it in a different way, you know. So you can, if, if all you've got is the people in power telling you this is why this policy is right and everything else is wrong, Whereas if you have some people presenting that information to you in a different way and go, well, actually, if you look at it like this, it's a bit stupid. Yeah, yeah. It just makes people think for themselves. The trouble with political jokes is they keep getting elected. That's my time. Oh, You've been God. great. Yeah, I'd stick to the novels now if I were you, John. That's what I'd do. <laughs> That's my research for this, because this is uh, one I um, I picked up cause I, to, as, a, as a nod to um, Angela's brilliant, brilliant Losing career. Brilliant. <laughs> Long-standing, oh, a long-standing. Oh, uh, it's like getting a lifetime placement. achievement award. It was a tribute. <laughs> this was a tribute podcast to Angela Barnes on Mock the Week, a lifetime achievement award. My research for this was the book From Fringe to Flying Circus by Roger Wilmer, and I also read the biography of Peter Cook by the late Harry Thompson, who incidentally was the first person to give me a commission to write comedy and sour. Uh, He's got a lot to answer. He has. For. Yes. So we'll be back next week. Maybe, or if we're being honest, it might be the week after, but we're pretty sure it's going to be next week. We're both struggling a little bit to fit these in between everything else. Or maybe we're being censored by the Tory government. Yeah. yeah that's it. Yeah. Um, so if we don't put out a show next week, let's go with that. That's it. But we're going to do our very best to. Yeah. Thank you for your listening. Thank you for your reviews, uh, which we greatly appreciate. Oh, yes. And your. Don't your... forget to follow us on Twitter at We Are History Pod, at not at We Are History, the John. band that John keeps harassing accidentally. We'll catch you next week and um, uh, give us five stars. Yes, please. If you could, that would be very, very lovely. See you guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.